0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled Warfare for the Gospel. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, verses four to twelve, as we join Dr. Newfeld
1: now. I don't think it's possible for the gospel to go forward without considerable spiritual warfare. I mean, Jesus did say that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, but you know that doesn't mean that the gates of hell are simply going to throw up a white flag when they see the church coming. The gates of hell are game for the fight, and if they must lose, they won't lose without doing considerable damage. I wonder if Saul and Barnabas had any idea what they were getting into when the first missionary enterprise began. I mean, did Saul of Tarsus know that down the road he would eventually say that he had despaired of life itself? Would Saul have known the danger he would constantly live under, the pressure he would have to endure, the imprisonments that awaited him? And of course, finally, his head would find the chopping block in Rome where he would be executed. I think it's a good thing for those of us who are faithful to the call of Christ that we're not aware of what awaits us. But God is faithful and he will not abandon his servants. I begun a series on Acts chapter 13 and 15, which covers the first missionary journey of Paul and then moves to the very famous Council of Jerusalem. You know, in these chapters we encounter Saul or Paul as a rookie missionary. He has up until this point been on a leadership team with a church in Antioch, along with his dear friend Barnabas and three other men. And they'd been fasting and praying, and the Holy Spirit spoke, saying that both Saul and Barnabas would be commissioned into the work to which they had been called. And that's where we begin today. So let's start with the first steps of the journey. I'm reading Acts 13, 4-5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So Saul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch in Syria, and from there they would have walked to the city of Cilicia. Antioch is inland, and it's in a mountainous location, but Cilicia is a seaport city through which all the goods that would later go to Antioch would have to pass through. And it's from there that Paul and Barnabas would have purchased tickets to sail to the island of Cyprus. And if you know your geography, you'll know that Cyprus, well, that's in the Mediterranean. It lies to the west off the coast of modern day Lebanon and just south of the coast of Turkey. That would be their first stop. Indeed, they arrived in the city of Salamis and they make a decision. They're gonna visit the Jewish synagogues there and proclaim Jesus. And that would make sense for a number of reasons. Barnabas was born in Cyprus. Indeed, Acts identifies him as a native of Cyprus. Well, Since he was a Levite, one has to imagine that he's well-known in the Jewish community there, and that a great many people would have been delighted to have him come home. See, up to this point, the missionary journey is nothing but a joy. And we should also notice that the arrival of Paul and Barnabas would not have been the first time the gospel of Jesus would be heard on that island. Acts 11:19 tells us that after the stoning of Stephen, the persecution that had arisen, some of the Christians fled to Cyprus for safety and they must have settled there. And so no doubt, because of their leadership in the church in Antioch, Barnabas and Saul are interested in forming the believers into a church. But before that would happen, because of their status, they were invited to proclaim Jesus in the local synagogues. Well, Luke doesn't actually tell us how it went. How did the synagogue leaders respond? How about the rest of the people? Were there some who were one to faith in Christ? Luke doesn't say. But the tense of the verb Luke uses, you know, it's written in such a way to give the impression that they were permitted or given the freedom to continue to do so. They continue to proclaim the word of God there. And then Luke gives us a brief side note. He tells us they had John to assist them and and the John he's referring to is not John the Apostle, rather it's John Mark. And the reason for that note here is that Luke is going to return to that theme of John Mark and how it came about that a disagreement regarding John Mark between Paul and Barnabas became so intense that he was the reason for the breaking up of this first ever missionary team. It turns out that the pressure of ministry is not only felt from without, it's also felt from within. But here Luke mentions him not as an equal to Paul and Barnabas, but rather he calls him an assistant. The word Luke uses is quite literally translated an underling. I suppose putting it into our language, we might call him a gopher. Mark, go for this. Mark, go for that. And please don't let that use of the word give you the sense that his role wasn't an important one. It was. We can only imagine all the arrangements that had to be made. Food, lodging, making sure that appointments were set up and kept arranging to make sure that Paul and Barnabas continued to have open receptions in the local synagogues. And so they're a team. And everything we know about this first early mission team is that it was a success. So let's continue to read Acts 13, six seven. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named bar He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now here a note of explanation is required. Like most other places along the Mediterranean, Cyprus was an imperial province under the jurisdiction of the Roman Senate. Sergius Paulus is called the proconsul. I suppose putting it into our terms, we might call him the governor of the island. He had been appointed by the Senate. It was a one-year appointment. He would have had authority over the military and over all the courts as well. And so let's follow our missionaries. They've been traveling through the island, starting at the eastern end, and then moving to the west coast. They had been traveling some 150 kilometers, and now they arrive at the far west coast of the island, and that's where the capital city is located, the place where Rome has its seat of government. So how do Paul and Barnabas get an audience with the proconsul? Well, Luke doesn't clearly tell us, We have to assume that Paul's status is such that as a leading rabbi and as a leader in the new community of Jesus, that must have made him a personality that people wanted to meet. And so, rather than, however, arranging an appointment with a proconsul, instead it would seem that in the course of their missionary duties in preaching in the synagogues and meeting with various groups of people and explaining the gospel wherever they went, they come upon a man by the name of Bar-Jesus. Now, that's an Aramaic name and it means the son of Jesus. Now, please remember that doesn't mean Bar Jesus is identifying himself with the Jesus that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. Jesus or the Hebrew word Joshua, it's a fairly common name. He's simply named after well, I suppose his father. We have to assume he's a Jewish man. He's also a false prophet and he's employed as a magician. So please don't think of that as we do in our day, that is, someone who uses sleight of hand to amaze crowds. Rather, think of him as a sorcerer, someone who claims to practice the dark arts. But in spite of all this, Bar-Jesus, well, he's fascinated with what he has heard Paul preach. And since he was in the employ of the Roman proconsul, it seems more than likely that he made the arrangements to have Barnabas and Saul meet with his boss. Well, to the naive, that sounds like great stuff, doesn't it? I mean, the naive who don't understand the nature of spiritual warfare would undoubtedly say, you know, wow. I mean, look, even guys like Bar-Jesus are interested in the gospel, and they're even arranging for the Roman governor to hear the word of God. I mean, doesn't God work in mysterious ways? But this, as we're going to find, is not what Bar-Jesus has in mind, not even at all. He's a crafty man. He's, He's looking to thoroughly discredit the two missionaries. Bar-Jesus wants nothing more than to end the influence of the Christian movement on the island of Cyprus. He sees it as a threat. He's devising a way to do great damage to Barnabas and Paul, and at any rate, he begins by sounding quite benign. Sergius Paulus says Luke is a highly intelligent man, and he's all in, he wants to see the two. And so Barnabas and Saul are brought there, and they're allowed to tell the proconsul what they've been preaching. And this now is what Bar-Jesus has been waiting for, and he shows his hand. Verse 8 says, But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Well, Luke tells us that Bar-Jesus had a Greek name. It was Elymas, which translated simply means magician. And it would seem that he was a counsel to the proconsul. And as Paul and Barnabas were preaching Jesus, and about his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus stepped into his role as a counselor and challenged, contradicted, opposed, and attempted to completely discredit this message. And some have thought that he did this because had the proconsul come to faith in Jesus, Elimus thought that he would have lost his job. Well, perhaps, but that doesn't explain why he had arranged the meeting in the first place. I think what Elimus was up to was much more evil He wanted to use the power of government against this new faith. Let's end the influence of the Jesus followers, forever banishing it from the island of Cyprus. Suddenly the first missionary journey becomes deadly serious. The church has already faced persecution in Jerusalem. Will they now face it again on Cyprus? So much is now at stake.
0: coming to the deadline for your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2022 Israel Experience. The time is drawing close, and we're nearing capacity. So if you're thinking of joining us for the Holy Land Adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, and join together for a communion service at the Garden Tomb. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, event numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at Back to the Bible.
1: I began this series by stating that the story of the spread of the gospel of Jesus, while it is a story against all odds. See, Christianity did not grow because it was supported by the governing authorities or because Christian armies invaded nations and conquered them and subjected people groups to the faith. Those kind of events only happened many, many hundreds of years later when a subversive form of Christianity was more interested in power than in Jesus. But the growth of the Christian faith can only be explained by the very appeal that Luke gives us. You know, as we began this passage, Paul and Barnabas had been sent out by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that not only sent the evangelist to preach the good news, but the Holy Spirit who ensured that the gospel would keep on going. And that's the supernatural basis of our faith. Not with the arm of the flesh, but with the arm of the spirit. So Saul and Barnabas must have been cognizant that they were in spiritual warfare. Having been given opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus with Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, well, they suddenly realized that this very same man could suddenly turn against the gospel as well. And all because of the wickedness of this Jewish false prophet who had lured them into this. But this would not be the last word, for Paul and Barnabas had not been lured into a fateful meeting. They'd been sent by the Holy Spirit, and suddenly things take a very interesting turn. I'm reading now Acts 13, 8 to 11. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead by the hand. Well, years later, Paul was to write not about this event in particular, but about events like it, why they occur. 2 Timothy 3, 8-9, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men. So Paul, throughout the course of his ministry, would have come to see how much more powerful is the gospel of Jesus than the corrupt talk of deceitful men. Now that's not to say that what happened in Paphos was a template for what would happen everywhere. I mean, after all, when Jesus himself stood before the Sanhedrin, or before Pilate, or before Herod, he didn't speak and everyone became blind. Furthermore, as we continue to read the ministry of Paul, we're going to find that many other times he was horribly abused. But That really is the point. In the end, the gospel does prevail, and it will prevail for at least three reasons. It will prevail because it's true. It will prevail because it's the best news that's ever been preached. And it will prevail because the Holy Spirit has determined to protect and promote the preaching of the word. And so on this occasion, no doubt inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul pulls off the real miracle. Remember, Elimus has the reputation of being a magician. And this standoff between Paul and Elimus, well, it really does look all the world like the standoff between Moses and the magicians of Egypt. Now, I want you to notice verse 9 again. Luke says, now Saul, who was called Paul, and this for the first time, Luke uses the name that most of us are familiar with, Paul. See, up till now, he's been called Saul, Saul of Tarsus. That was his Hebrew name. And now, for the first time, Luke calls him Paul. And why is that? Well, the answer seems to be that Saul has adopted a Greek name, the name Paulus. The name's a loan word that comes from Latin, and it means little one. It was Augustine who believed that Paul took that name to indicate that he was the least of the apostles, and I suppose that's possible, but it's also true that like a great many other people of his day, especially of Roman citizens who also had a different nationality, that it was quite common for a number of people to have at least three names. And so for the sake of his ministry among the Gentiles, the Greek name would do just fine. At any rate, Paul turns to the magician in front of the proconsul, He addresses the false prophet with several titles. First he says, you son of the devil. That's not slander, Paul means it. You might remember the parable that Jesus told. I mean the one about the the wheat and the weeds. When Jesus was interpreting that parable, he says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Yeah, says Jesus, the devil has sons. These are the people he has recruited to disrupt the harvest of the gospel trained by Satan, instructed constantly by Satan, they seek to harm the gospel's progress. Are there still people like that today? Well, yeah, there are. Sometimes they're government leaders who pass laws that make the preaching of the gospel harder, sometimes even impossible. Sometimes they are like Elimus, men who use their influence to prevent the gospel from being heard. And Paul's under no illusions as to who this man is. It's not a matter of a difference of opinion. This is a matter of staring the servant of Satan in the face and seeing the warfare that is now at hand. Next, notice that Paul calls him the enemy of all righteousness. So it's true that this man opposes the gospel, but this man opposes everything that's righteous. And notice also, by preaching the righteousness of Jesus, Paul regards Eliamus as an enemy. You know, this is surprising to some people. You know, the naive, well, they tend to think of people in terms, you know, merely misunderstandings. Uh, They're just seeing things from a different perspective. Missing in the naive is the idea of genuine evil and what happens when we face it. And last of all, Paul says that alimus is full of trickery and deceit. And to be full of deceit is to be full of, what, dishonesty. Paul says, I know you resort to lies on a constant basis. That's how you've gotten the position that you now occupy. You like your father Satan, you're a liar. And with that, Paul, after charging him with trying to subvert the ways of God, Paul now pronounces judgment on him. He tells him that the hand of the Lord is upon him. You know, we could at this point, you know, do a study of the hand of the Lord. It's true that the Bible indicates a number of times when the hand of the Lord is a blessing. But Psalm 32 reminds us that when God's hand is on us and we're in sin, our bones waste away, our strength is dried up. But in this case, the hand of God upon Elimus is a judging hand. Paul has no sooner told him that he will be blind for a time when immediately blindness strikes Elimus. He's instantly blind and in terror, he asks someone to lead him by the hand. I assume he's being led out of the room. I find it fascinating because Paul who makes this pronouncement, must have known what this felt like. In his unconverted state, Paul would have remembered how he himself, when he was on the road to Damascus, looking to persecute Christians and throw them into prison, Jesus had appeared to him and for three days, Paul himself had been blind, without sight. In Paul's case, that would of course lead to his conversion. But Luke never mentions Limas again, and we have to assume that he was simply discredited and that his position as an advisor to the proconsul ended on that day. And that's the irony. Having brought Paul and Barnabas to the proconsul so that he could discredit them, the tables are now turned, and Eliamus is utterly discredited. Luke then adds one more important item, Acts 13, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the proconsul becomes a follower of Jesus. And this occurred, says Luke, for two reasons. The first is quite simply because he witnessed the power of God. See, in his mind, the reality of God among us. Paul had been talking about the resurrection of Jesus. That's now reinforced. He sees God at work. But Luke tells us that he believed when he saw, but he saved the word astonished, not for a miracle, but rather for his reaction to the teaching of Jesus. He's astonished by what he heard about Jesus. And it's this, this amazement at the gospel that tells us that he indeed is a genuine convert. So let's step back and consider Paul and Barnabas' first missionary encounter. This first trip to Cyprus is successful. The synagogues continue to remain open to them for the preaching of the gospel. The Christians who are already there would no doubt have been greatly strengthened and encouraged, and all of it was capped off in the capital city of Paphos as the gospel of Jesus penetrated into the Roman government and Sergius Paulus himself confessed faith in Jesus Christ, everyone would have heard. No doubt, if all missionary enterprises ended that successfully, we'd all be greatly encouraged. And in truth, no doubt, Paul and Barnabas, along with John Mark, were filled with joy. In many ways, what happened in Cyprus was a precursor to the kind of success they would continue to have. However, please understand, that as they carried on, the pressure against them would only be ratcheted up. Elymas was only the first man the devil sent into battle. The gates of hell would not prevail to be sure, but they put up a fight. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ will prevail. It will prevail today, my brother and sister. Do not be afraid to continue to share the good saving news, regardless of the situation, the Holy Spirit is with you.
0: Thanks, John. You know, we've both heard a lot of stories of incredible miracles that take place in people's lives and in places who have never heard the gospel. Is this something we should
1: expect and anticipate? Well, you know, I've heard many of these stories and been with people who have encountered them. Uh, Many times these are uh, events that happen when the gospel first comes to a place and it authenticates the truth of the gospel, but it can happen at any time, and I would simply say uh, let's continue to uh, leave these things completely into the hands of the Holy Spirit, and uh, let's just follow him, and let's not be concerned if there are miracles or not. Let's be faithful to the gospel, and if it should so be that the Holy Spirit would you know, make these things possible, then uh, let's rejoice in them, and uh, let's continue to use that as further opportunity.
0: Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the Missionary Enterprise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission. In particular, those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 monthly partnership program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425.